What is up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Rewired Soul Podcast. It's your host, Chris. And today is the first time that I'm doing a little bit of a rebroadcast. All right. So some of you might have listened to this episode before. Some of you haven't because the podcast has grown quite a bit since the last time I had this guest, Lucy folks on. All right. But anyways, this is something I'll probably be doing again in the future. I definitely am pretty soon with uh, Monica Guzman's book as well. But a lot of the authors who come on here, and it's something I'm kind of learning as I'm diving more into the book world, is that a lot of books have like a UK release date and then a United States release date, or like in Monica's case, uh, we recorded it months before her book came out because I get review copies. So what I like to do is promote authors. That's one of the reasons I have authors like the wonderful Lucy uh, folks on here today um, is because I want you to read their books. Like I am trying to get more people to check out these books, you know, diving into, you know, topics that I think are important. You know, I read nonfiction and I think there's something that we can learn or take away from every single book out there. So I want to do my best to like get the word out. And today, uh, you know, with this episode with Lucy, I really wanted to do this rebroadcast because Lucy wrote one of what I think is the most important books on the mental health conversation. So for those of you who don't know, uh, most of you probably do. I am a recovering uh, drug addict, alcoholic. I've been sober since 2012. And, you know, I've worked in addiction treatment and I've helped and worked with a lot of addicts and alcoholics, but also a lot of people with mental health issues. Even though I'm not a licensed therapist or clinician, I've done a lot of, you know, peer support. Uh, my lovely girlfriend, she is currently in her master's program for social work. Like mental health is a huge, huge, huge aspect of my life. And, you know, I have a son who just turned 13 and, you know, one of the things I, I don't want him to go through, uh, or one of the million things I don't want him to go through is like all the things I dealt with, with my depression, my anxiety, my addiction and all that stuff. But we, we really need to discuss like the landscape of how this mental health conversation is going. And that's why Lucy's book, Losing Our Minds is so, so, so important. And it comes out tomorrow, uh, depending on when you're listening to this, uh, I released this on the 24th of January. It's coming out in the United States on the 25th, but everybody needs to read this book. Lucy, uh, she is a mental health researcher and she just dives into so many different topics. She covers all of, you know, the major mental illnesses, you know, like depression, anxiety, uh, bipolar disorder, uh, personality disorder, schizophrenia, all sorts of things. And, you know, she talks about how, uh, in many cases, we overdiagnose people, but also in many cases, we underdiagnose people. We don't talk about it and there's still a stigma and so, so, so many other things. And, you know, something that Lucy and I hit on in this is that, you know, the whole world of mental health, it's, it's just messy. And, you know, uh, much like, you know, with uh, political or social issues, there seems to be this black and white thinking. It's either one thing or the other thing. But as I hope you've learned from this podcast or reading these books is everything isn't black and white. It's a lot more nuanced than that. And that's why I love Lucy's book so much. So it'll help you uh, with your own mental health. It'll help you talk with others who are struggling or dealing with something. And if you're a parent like myself, it'll help you have better conversations with your kids, learn uh, you know, what signs to look for, because none of us want anybody in our life 
you know, to suffer, you know, we want to be there for them. Uh, but it's important to understand what the research says about mental health issues. And some of these, you know, some of these, you know, real issues about overdiagnosing, underdiagnosing the stigma and all that. But anyways, I can't stress enough how much I love this book. So make sure you head down to the description, follow Lucy over on Twitter, grab a copy of this book as soon as possible. That's linked down in the description as well. But before we get started, if you're not yet, make sure you are following the podcast, uh, you're subscribed to it. If you like the podcast, leave a rating and review. That helps a lot. And and make sure you're following me over on uh, Instagram and Twitter at The Rewired Soul. I love chatting with all of you. Uh, we have some great conversations. I love it. And that way you don't miss any upcoming episodes. So follow me at The Rewired Soul on Instagram and Twitter. That's linked down below as well. But anyways, without further ado, here's my conversation with Lucy Folks about her book that was just released or is released tomorrow in the United States. It's called Losing Our Minds, The Challenge of Defining Mental Illness. Hello, Lucy. How are you doing today? I, I'm fine. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank, I'm so glad that we were able to connect. And you've seen me ranting and raving just in positive ways about your book on Twitter. So I'm so excited to talk to you. So can you tell those who have yet to check it out, what, what inspired you to sit down and write this book? Uh, well, I noticed that we're talking a lot about mental health and illness in society at the moment, you know, at school, at university, just in general conversations uh, on social media. And I started to wonder some of the message that messages that were being shared, whether they were true, whether it was actually mm. accurate and whether it was helpful. And I often found myself thinking, no, you know, I don't think we're talking about it so much, but I'm not sure. Uh, we're talking about it in the right way. I think people are kind of more confused than ever. And so I yeah. wanted to write it to try and uh, set the record straight, to try and kind of map out what we do know and be honest about what we don't know to to provide a bit of reassurance, I guess, and clarity. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I think that's one of the reasons I, I loved it uh, because I was kind of noticing the same things. But but also real quick, uh, for those who haven't met you, uh, what, what's what's your background? Because you you know a little bit about this stuff and and all that. <laughs> what, yeah. What's your background in? Uh, well, so I have a sort of personal and professional um, background for this topic. So I had a history of um, depression and anxiety from well, anxiety right from when I was a child. So I have a kind of personal expertise. And then I did a psychology um, undergrad and a PhD in mental health, and then now work as an academic psychologist. Um, so I, yeah, I've sort of come at it from both angles, which was helpful for writing the book. Yeah. Yeah. No. And I, and I, that's one thing I loved about the book is you shared some of your personal experience as well. Like, like for me, for example, my, my anxiety is what led to my substance abuse, which turned into an addiction because I was trying to self-medicate and, and yeah, I think that's a good place to start with this discussion around what inspired your book. So, uh, like real quick, like about me, like what I noticed when I, when I finally got sober in 2012, I wanted to educate myself. I'm like, what happened? Why am I different? What is going on? You know, I, cause it wasn't until I got sober that I was diagnosed with anxiety and depression. I'm like, oh, here's what it is. This is helpful. Now I can work on it. But yeah. I looked back at my schooling and we never talked, we never talked about it. We never learned about it. So I'm like, 
we're not talking about this enough. So, mm. you know, I was working at a, at a, a drug and alcohol rehab center. I loved educating people with everything that I was learning. And I'm like, I'll start a YouTube channel because we don't talk about this enough. But then I started noticing, I think kind of what you noticed. I'm like, maybe, wait, are we not talking about it enough? Are we talking about, about it way too much? So, so I think, I think your book has a great balance, but have you seen that kind of like, it's, it's a little bit of both, like depending on the community or, or what? I think with the sort of extent that we were talking about, the volume of conversations is good, but just the, it's the quality of the information mm. isn't good. I think it's, it's far too shallow. There's a lot of sort of um, box ticking and virtue signaling um, with very little actually uh, detailed understanding of the problem. Um, but yeah, the, the same as you, I was thinking, God, we need to talk about this more. We need to talk about this more in schools and universities, blah, blah, blah. You know, but I never had these conversations when I was a teenager or a child. And then I'm thinking, hang on, but actually, are we in a better position now than we were back then? You know, are you better off now as a 20 year old than you were mm. when I was 20? That's the information you get. And in some respects, I think, yes, but uh, yeah, my, my concern was that, yeah, we've got a long way to go. We're overshooting a little bit. There's been some collateral damage, um, which I talk about in the book. Um, yeah, so I think it's about redressing the balance a bit. Yeah. It's not about stopping talking about it. Yeah, something something I've been getting into lately, because I just love reading and learning about stuff. I've been getting into sociolinguistics, right? Like, I'm just interested in, like, language. And something you touch on in the book is is kind of the, the, the language and how often we use this, like you, you kind of go like, uh, you know, through different disorders and everything like that. But you know, the way we talk about depression, anxiety, OCD, like, for example, I started noticing, right? Like, oh, you know, someone's having a bad day. I'm depressed. Right. And it's like, mm -hmm. are you depressed? Or are you having a bad day? Right. Like did something bad happen and you're just feeling normal human emotions or, you mm -hmm. know, people saying, they're, they're having anxiety or a panic attack, even though they're just a little bit nervous, right? Or yeah. someone who, who's like, oh, yeah, I like to keep my desk organized. I'm so OCD, right? And, you know, obviously, you, you, you know, you have a ton of experience. I've worked in mental health treatment. I'm like, no, like these are like you, you do not know. So how much do you like, do you think? So two questions. Do you think that the language is being overused? Is that part of the issue? And how do you think that affects you know, the stigma, the conversation, how people get help. Like, like, I guess the question is, I'm always asking myself, like, am I overreacting? Does this even matter? You know what I mean? So yeah, I'm curious I think your it thoughts. Does matter. I think it matters a lot. I think it's happened, all things you describe, because of this huge drive, all these campaigns, these well-intended campaigns to talk more about this problem. Um, so people are using these terms because they've been given them, right? We've, we've, said you know there's this thing called OCD there's this thing called panic attacks this thing called PTSD so it's no it's no surprise that people have absorbed this language you know this is the cultural framework that they have you know to to when you're distressed you kind of reach for a psychiatric label often now so it's, this is kind of no one's fault it's because it's it's actually just a consequence of this big drive to talk more about it which is is broadly a good thing yeah um but it comes at a cost and I think it comes at a cost um for people firstly for people who maybe uh, have more mild or transient problems I think it's unhelpful to use these labels because 
they're a kind of double-edged sword and they can be um you know scary and heavy to take on like I was talking to um someone she's kind of in her early 20s maybe saying that her partner had social anxiety and that he was sort of worried that it was a um you know he was finding it difficult to process the fact that he had this condition and I was thinking well maybe he doesn't have a condition you know maybe what he's experiencing is is actually just quite normal Mm-hmm. So, that, so that's one kind of cost and the other cost is for people who really are at the sharp end of the spectrum who really do have social anxiety disorder or OCD or whatever the issue for them is then that these terms have lost meaning you know we need to reserve some language for the people who are seriously unwell so that those terms still carry uh, useful weight and meaning and power yeah, no, I, I, I absolutely agree. It's, it's so tricky because I do think that there are people, you know, there's just so many things like you touched on, uh, Jonathan Hyde and Greg Lukianoff's book in there, you know, and some of that stuff's like around like outrage culture and language. So I try, like, I feel weird when I'm like, Hey, don't overuse these words and stuff. But at the same time, it is a real issue. I, I was talking with somebody the other day, uh, just, you know, uh, a little bit of a debate and they, you know, they brought up a, a good point, which, you know, I agree with is that language changes and language evolves, but I think it's, it's a little bit more nuanced than that because if not, we, we, we have to, we, it's hard to die. It's hard to address a problem if the diagnosis or, or what we're, we're talking about is costly changing, right? Like if all of a sudden my leg is called my arm and I, you know, I break my leg, they're not going to know what to fix. Right. So that's, that's kind of how I see mental illness. And when, you know, if I'm, if I'm with 50 people, well, it's triage too, right? Like if you're with 50 people and each one says that they're suicidal or each one has depression or each one is having a panic attack like how do you know if they're all saying the same thing it's like there's no there's no gauge so do you see that Mm -hmm. affecting like here's here's a great question for you lucy since you're in the uk i as somebody who wants uh your type of healthcare system here in the united states do you think that that bogs down your system because all i hear is like hey they gotta wait forever you know, over the UK to see like a mental health professional. Like, do you think that's a factor is how we overuse these terms? Uh, I I think potentially it could be a problem. I think there's a mismatch between these campaigns telling, encouraging everyone to go and get help if they're in distress. And then that's not been met by enough resources. So even before there was this awareness you had to wait a long time to get an appointment and now which is what I talk about in the book as as a potential problem is that we're we're funneling more and more people into a system that's already overwhelmed and so that's not to say that I think some people shouldn't turn up it's very difficult uh, for me to make any sort of generalized point about who doesn't doesn't need um, support from the NHS but broadly if you look across the whole population not everyone needs professional help yeah. So the problem is that we're telling everyone to get help and not matching that with help when you turn up. And that could potentially make things worse. You know, if, if you tell people to go and get help and then they turn up and they can't get it, you know, that's that's awful. That's only going to add to their distress. Yeah, it here. OK. All right, Lucy, we're going to we're going to try to figure out some some solutions here, because here's mm-hmm. here's something that I think about. Right. So as we were talking about, like I noticed, like, you know, uh, it feels like we never talked about mental health and, you know, I try to be open and honest and stuff. I want to normalize it. Like the other day, uh, my, uh, my doctor switched my antidepressant medic- medication. I'm just like, Oh, I'll talk about it. Right. You know, cause I just want it to be normal. 
that's it, right? It's almost like if I took like cold medicine, right? So I want it to be normal. But the thing is, there's part of this conversation is like, hey, don't be afraid to ask for help, right? So here's what I think, like with systems being bogged down and stuff like that, like even here in the United States, even with our, you know, our type of healthcare system, you might wait forever. Like if I, if I call to set a, an appointment with a psychiatrist today, it'd be a month. Like, so, so, so yeah. Right. Yeah. So what do we do when the system's being bogged down, but we're also telling people like, Hey, this is nothing to be ashamed of. There's nothing to be embarrassed about. You know what I do? Do you, do you kind of see what I'm saying? Like, yeah. Like, where's I, that balance? I don't know what the solution is. I don't know what the solution is other yeah. than um, properly fund the services. You know, the, the bigger issue isn't people turning up who shouldn't be there. It's there are so many people who are badly in need who are being turned away. You know, people who are kind of actively suicidal having to wait for help. Oh, yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's it's a mess. And it, so it frustrates me when you see these. Uh, social media campaigns saying all you need to do is you know reach out and get help and it's not it's not the reality yeah, yeah they don't they don't tell you the the additional part that's that's the same thing here in the united states just coming from like the addiction treatment background uh and so many people in the united states without health care i'd have people call me uh you know who lost their insurance because a lot of people what happens with drug use is they they relapse they lose their job they lose their insurance right and we have state-funded facilities but it's it's months, well, right? Enough, it is yeah. it is months, and that's a really difficult thing. So I help people it, navigate. It's a long time to wait. A week is a long time to wait if you're in oh. crisis. You know? Oh yeah, yeah. Like like you mentioned, like uh, if someone's suicidal, um, with with the amount of uh, overdose deaths, like all that stuff, like it could be intense. But I I'm also wondering too. So let's let's take this in a few steps. So the okay. first thing, like, I want to talk a little bit about education, like what we can all do individually, right? Like part of me educating myself uh, is knowing when I need to ask for help, right? Where I can be like, okay, maybe this isn't like a major issue. Maybe I'll just get through this. Mm -hmm. So let's start here for anybody out there listening. How do we define like mental illness. So there's certain signs and I know each one's going to be different, but are there some general like things that we should look for? Like, Hey, maybe this is at a point where we should start thinking about getting help. Well, I think it's useful to think about it, to sort of recognize and a big part of the book was making the point. There's not like, it's not like you don't have mental illness or you do. Yeah. These symptoms are all on a spectrum. And it's just that there are a few indicators that mean you will gradually be moving up to the more severe end. So the professionals, you know, it's not a binary thing you do or you don't. The only reason that there is this defined thing called depression or PTSD is that professionals have kind of put the line in the sand and said, yeah. okay, this is the point where we're going to call it a disorder, even though actually if you fall just below that line, it doesn't mean you're not um, in need of help. Um so yeah, there's no, there's no simple way of saying this is a disorder and this isn't, but the kind of factors that would push you further up into the more disordered end are how long the symptoms have been going on for, how severe they are, how frequently you have them. So is it kind of every day or is it, you know, you know, once a week or something? Um, how much distress do they cause you? How much do they affect your ability to live the life that you want to live? And how much can you control them? So in terms of things like, uh, you know, worry, for example, or um, hearing voices in your head, you know, people vary um, mm -hmm. in terms of how much they control them. 
can control them. So all of these things, if you start having a sort of a more severe version of all of those things, you start moving further up um, the spectrum. But there is no, um, yeah, there's no sort of simple list I can give to say this is the point at which you need help. You know, you have to, you know, you know yourself or you know your child. And if you're worried, then definitely go and speak to someone. But these are the kind of, these are the kind of factors that professionals might take into account to decide whether it should kind of count as a disorder or a problem. Yeah. So for me personally, and everybody listening, I'm not a licensed professional, but for me, like with my mental health and something I learned when I started taking care of it is like one of the main things I look for is like, is this affecting my life in a negative way, whether it's work, relationships, like, am I, am I not showing up to work? Am I, can I not get out of bed? Right. Am I having panic attacks at work? Is it not going away? Uh, I used to struggle, like my anxiety would make me very, um, frustrated and irritable and annoyed. Right. And I'm a pretty like, Hey, you just met me. I'm a pretty happy, nice guy. Right. <laughs> but if I start getting, if I'm regularly irritated, you know, so if my personal relationships, if I'm snapping at my son, if I'm snapping at my girlfriend and friends and stuff like that, um, you know, these are little signs for me, like, Hey, this is affecting my life. This isn't my normal baseline. So I'm like, Hey, I'm going to set up an appointment or, you know, maybe my meds need to be adjusted because something else I've done, um, because my drug of choice was uh, prescription pills. So like, I just have a thing in me where I'm like, I, I don't want to be on medications, especially because there's side effects and stuff like mm -hmm. that. So when I get good, I always do this with a doctor. I'm like, Hey, what do you think about us going down? And she's like, yeah. So we do it with doctor supervision and stuff like that. But at the same time, I tell my girlfriend, I'm like, Hey, if I start acting a little weird, let me know. Cause I might not even notice it. You know what I mean? So those are, those are just things that I, I personally do, uh, to see if it's affecting me and like, okay, now it's getting to a point where I need to do something because I used to be the type of guy, uh, where I wanted to do it all on my own. So mm -hmm. do you, do you still, do you still see that as an issue too? Is that there's still an issue with not enough people asking for help too, and just kind of trying to go through this on alone, alone, because I, I imagine the UK is kind of similar with the individualism that we have here in the United States. Do you think some people just try to tough it out? Definitely. And I think it's, I think I, I talk about it's in the book, how we're in, there's a strange sort of paradox at the moment where in, in some respects, um, you know, too many people are sort of over-medicalizing or pathologizing mm. normal experiences, but at the same time, there are still plenty of people who badly need help and don't realize what's happening to them or are too scared um, to ask for it. So I think both of those things are happening at the same time. That's partly why this, you know, why this topic is so, um, so messy. I think I've definitely um, anecdotally feel very aware of uh, people's concern around taking medication in terms of wanting to do it on their own. Mm -hmm. um, you know, they feel like taking medication is kind of cheating. Like actually, yeah. I'd rather I'd rather work it out on my own. Um, I think that's still pretty pervasive. Um, while also at the same time, there's probably lots of people who are going too readily on medication when actually maybe they should be trying to, uh, you know, wait and see a little bit. So yeah, both both things happening at the same time. Yeah, and and real real quick, I'm just going to talk about how much I love the book again, real quick. Like, here's what I loved about the book, Lucy. And I, and, and I just, I hope other people notice this is, is that like with, with what you were just saying, like, that's like the entire book, like it's messy, right? Mm -hmm. Like, like you put it in there, like, so like, okay, 
Lucy. So I'm, I'm at like 260 books this year and so many books, they have this idea or this thesis and they just go one direction. Right. And they don't present counter arguments or anything. And that's why I love your book because it shows both sides. Like, yeah, we overdiagnose and we underdiagnose. People are trying to get too much help, but there's also people who want, and like, I appreciate that honesty because unless we recognize that we can't really like look at it and sit back and say, am I overreacting or am I underreacting? And all that kind of stuff. And, and, you know, um, one of my other questions about this kind of, you know, when do we get help and stuff like that? I'm, I'm wondering your thoughts. Cause I always think that education is a huge aspect of this. My life has changed since I just sat down and wanted to learn about this. So do you think like, how important do you think education is for tackling some of these issues, just even on an individual level, like. Um, well, firstly, I'm glad that you picked up on that from the book about it being messy. Cause I remember very early conversation with my agent and as we were writing the proposal and he said, you know, well, how, how would you sum up the book in one, in a sentence? And I was like, mental health is messy. And he was like, that's too vague. Like you need to try and refine it a little bit. But that was my, my whole point. It still is that that's my kind of conclusion basically. Yeah. Um, but yeah, ed- education, are you talking about education in schools? Well, I guess let's, let's start with schools. Let's start, let's start down here and then we'll talk a little bit about up here. So yeah, like kids, like my son is 12, he's in middle school here. Right. And I've, I've taken on the personal responsibility. Right. So, you know, schools are bogged down with, you know, they got to teach math and science and blah, 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 blah. Like, so do you think schools could be doing a better job or? I'm actually writing something at the moment, Ooh. an academic thing about um, what we should be doing in schools and specifically that we, are, we should be asking young people themselves what they want to hear in schools. Um, I think there's an awful lot of, there's a huge interest in teaching mental health stuff in schools. Um, I think it's extremely well intended, um, but I think we haven't quite figured out what the best things to teach them are we need to strike a very difficult balance between we need to provide education information about mental health so people feel um you know empowered to understand themselves and to help themselves get better and to seek help when they need it etc but we also need to balance that with not promoting this message of fragility and vulnerability and that you know every every corner that you turn in life is a sort of source of potential danger yeah. and harm and I think we haven't you know sometimes some of the school programs possibly uh towards that side a little bit so we need to be really really careful about what how do we teach them to be empowering and helpful without being you know kind of alarming I think yeah and uh I I think back because uh here in the states I don't know if uh, you you all have it over there too but like we I had health classes like in from a child, like it was like required health classes. And I think about it, like, you know, they talk about physical health and they would talk about different diseases when you'd become a teenager and they start talking about sexually transmitted diseases, but we talk about, you know, foods and healthy, but they talk about like things to look out for. And here's things like, here's signs that you might be unhealthy or getting overweight or not active enough and all that. And I just think I'm like, just do the same thing with mental health. Right. Like, like they encourage us, like we have uh, physical education here where they try to keep you active and you play sports and stuff like that. Well, what if we also emphasize the importance of support groups, the, the importance of, you know, meditation or journaling? Like there's so many things that feels like you could easily 
split that into a curriculum. Well, um, I mean, I don't know about the US, but it's definitely happening here. Um, there's been a huge drive to to share those kind of messages. Really? Like, definitely. Uh, there are specific programs like, you know, mindfulness programs for schools. Yeah. Um, there's also a lot, you know, there's all sorts of competing programs that you can kind of take off the shelf. Or there's lots of schools that are kind of making it up as they go along, but they are creating a, a mental health program. Yeah. The, the good side of that is that, you know, that's great. We can, we can teach people um, signs. We can educate them about, for example, what OCD is in case, you know, their friend has it or whatever. Um, and we can help, you know, teach them that if, if you become overwhelmed, this is how you get extra help. That's mm-hmm. all really good. My only um, concern is that how you how you sort of delicately convey that message without like how do you teach them about anxiety without them then concluding that every episode of anxiety is a problem yeah yeah uh do by chance do you have kids no no so so i got a son and like there's so many awkward conversations right like like uh you know here's a good example death Right. When a kid has to learn about death and it's like, oh, God. Right. But I see the kind of a similar thing. And it's just like it feels like our responsibility as adults, like, hey, this thing exists, but don't be too freaked out about it. It's just <laughs> yeah, exactly. something that can happen. You know what I mean? And, you know, I've noticed, uh, you know, a lot of parents, they don't like having these uncomfortable conversations. I recently had another author out here, uh, Melinda Winter Moyer, about her book, How to Raise Kids Who Aren't Assholes. Well, part of it is just having these conversations. <laughs> but. So something else I think about, like staying on the topic of kids and starting them off early. Um, just for example, I grew up with an alcoholic mom. She's sober now, but she got sober when I was 20. There was a lot of damage done to me by the time, you know what I mean? And there are, you know, genetic components, you know, mental illness or addiction running in the family. But also uh, when I learned about, you know, the ACEs test, the adverse childhood experiences and just childhood trauma, and there's so many environmental factors, right? Like that can just mess up a kid, increase their likelihood for depression, anxiety. Like if you're in a household where it's constantly insane, Mm. your brain's going to be like, you need to be on high alert at all times because you never know what's going to happen. Anyways, anyways, what I'm getting at, Lucy, is aside from schools, how important is it that parents are educated about for lack of better words, about how we can screw our kids up. You know what I mean? <laughs> so do you have, are you working on anything to educate parents? And well, also, yeah, I mean, the, the screwing up thing, but also, <laughs> yeah, how do you have conversations with them about mental health more generally? You know, how do you as a parent know whether your teenager is just being moody versus whether they're depressed? Um, yeah, there's, there's, a, there's an interesting question to be asked about how much is this school's responsibility versus how much is this uh, parent's responsibility? I think, again, when it comes to parents, we've got two um, um, extremes that are happening and everything in between, one of which um, parents are um, don't want to admit that their child has a problem, can't recognise that their child has a problem, doesn't know what to do about it, hasn't heard of any of these things, it's bearing them under the carpet, et cetera, et cetera. And then right at the other end, you have some parents who are so kind of keyed up um keyed up on these mental health topics yeah. and conversations that they kind of panic as soon as their child's unhappy um 
which is like, again, it's totally understandable, you know, with feeding these messages to, to sort of look out for the signs and telling parents this is what depression is, etc. So I think both things are happening at the same time. You know, I think there's definitely parents who don't want to get help because they because of the stigma of it. They're kind of in denial about the being a problem. Um, it's really difficult. I don't, again, I don't have a straightforward answer. Yeah. So, you know, there's, uh, you know, just work, working in, you know, this field and just being, you know, uh, you know, around, especially, you know, people trying to stay sober and stuff. I've, I've witnessed just, you know, a ton of deaths, like overdoses and suicides and stuff. And I'm, you know, I keep up with the news and things like that. And something that I always hear is like, we didn't see it coming. Right. We didn't see it coming and stuff like that. Um, but it always seems like there are people who did see it coming. But I want to I want to talk a little bit about, you know, why parents don't recognize it, because I feel like I've seen this a lot. Right. Uh, I've seen this with friends, you know, because people know I'm in recovery. So they'll be like, hey, can you help so and so? I'm like, sure, I'll talk to somebody. And I notice how many parents are like, no, they're fine. They're fine. Right. And I live in Las Vegas, Nevada. So friends here like, oh, no, just drinking and using drugs, it's totally normal. Like, you know, all this stuff, but even depression and anxiety. So there's a few different factors where, and here's just my theories. Like one of the, one of the possibilities is a parent will feel if they admit their son or daughter is depressed or anxious or trauma or, you know, separate from trauma or is self-harming or whatever, they think if I admit to that, then I am a bad parent, right? Mm -hmm. Um, then there's also the other factor that you, you brought up the stigma, right? If mm -hmm. I send my son to treatment, what is everybody going to think about me? Yeah. Yeah, right? yeah. So, so I guess the question I have for you, if there are parents listening right now, like how do we talk to other parents about this, who have these, these fears that it means they're a bad parent or other people might judge them. What should we do about that sort of issue? Well, I think it's important to that there's never one single factor that causes, um, you know, mental illness or mental health problem. Um, you know, these things can strike people who've had really happy childhoods with parents mm -hmm. who um, love them. It's, it's never as straightforward as, um, you know, a parent did this one thing and it's caused it. I mean, like you say, it's a multitude of biological and environmental factors and parents can control some aspects of the environment for their child, but not all of them. Um, so I think it's, it's, it's never helpful to hone in on any one thing as, as the, the cause or the fault. Um, yeah. So I, I hope that's reassuring. I suppose that it's, it's yeah, that sort of blame is, often quite futile actually and when it happens to you it's incredibly tempting to pick apart exactly what caused it and why it happened and I imagine as if it happens to a child then parents will do that too but in a way it's, it's sort of pointless actually it's it's more useful to think about okay well it's happening right now we've, we're, we've reached this point maybe it doesn't actually matter how we got here and maybe what's more important is to tackle the problem now yeah yeah and you know uh here, here's a quick little rant that I think I, I can only do with you, uh, in, in the recovery community. And, uh, you know, there's this debate around like the disease model of addiction, right. Yeah. And 12 step programs teach that and all that. And me, like, I'm, I'm really into the science and everything, but at the, at, at the foundation of it, I really don't care. And here's why, because for me, it, the idea of it taught me that I'm not a terrible person. 
right? I'm not a flawed, broken person. You know, maybe there's a genetic component. Maybe I'm wired differently. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I got sober in 12-step programs, even though I'm not as active with nine years sober, but they have a chapter where they relate it to an allergy, right? But that gave me some peace. It's like, oh my God, okay, like something's just different about me. But then that expanded to my depression, my anxiety, like, hey, there's some things that are outside of my control. And when I try to educate people, that's what I try to teach them. It's like, hey, this might have nothing to do with you. Like, would you, would you feel embarrassed? Like, for example, let's use this as an example. Would a parent feel embarrassed if their child got diagnosed with any physical illness, like cancer, or if they caught, I don't know, COVID or whatever, you know what I mean? Like, like we need to start looking at mental health at like physical health. That helps me not think of it as such a bad, like, or as a moral failing or, oh, my kid's depressed because I'm not doing something right. Mm -hmm. So that, so that's my rant. That's why I hate that debate around the, you know, is it a disease or is it, it's like, I was like, there's certain people, not everybody that it'll, it might help. Like it helped me noticing that it, it might've been something outside of my control. So I, yeah. I I don't know. I'm curious. I'm curious your thought about that because there are debates even uh, just with regular disorders, like saying mm -hmm. this, this is a disorder. The One of the arguments is like, you know, that it makes a person feel like they're helpless and they can't do anything or, you know, or, or maybe that they'll use it as an excuse like, oh, I have this disorder, so I don't have to do anything. So do, do you think there's, a, there's anything with that, with the conversation around d disorder versus like in your control? Yeah, I have a lot to say about that. I think Lay it's it on me. this, whether it's a you know biological problem or not. Um, I think people should have freedom to choose what what framing they find most helpful. You know, if you find it helpful to think about it as a biological thing, go for it. You know, if you'd rather think about it as something that's sort of environmentally determined, then you can go for that as well. Because actually, in reality, it's probably probably will have been a bit of both. Yeah. Um, I think viewing them as biological diseases or illnesses is a sort of mixed um yeah double-edged sword again like everything uh like what you say i think it's incredibly powerful in terms of thinking it's not your fault you know no one would blame themselves for getting cancer or, or type 1 diabetes yeah. um you know so it's, it's something that's in your makeup and it just it happened it's not your fault the cost to some of the biological explanations i think is that um, it's not just me thinking this, actually people have found this, is that it can make people think it's harder to fix. Yeah. It's more like, okay, well, it's it's a part of me that I cannot help, therefore I'm going to have it forever. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I think it can be useful in terms of reducing self-stigma for understanding why you got it, why you have it, but it can be problematic in terms of um, getting better because it can be like, okay, well, there's something wrong with my brain and that's it kind of thing. Yeah. So, I think, you, yeah, basically people should have the, you know, there's so many different ways of explaining and understanding this. You've got to find the way that works for you for, for understanding your own experience of it, I think. Yeah. Here's, here's what helps me not feel helpless or hopeless. Like I think of, you know, my, my addiction or mental illness or whatever, like cancer, right? Like it goes into remission. If I'm treating it, if I'm doing the right things or even weight loss, right? I've been, you know, losing weight this, this year, going on walks. I got my little Apple watch and all that. If I'm taking care of it, I do have some control over it. So that's, yeah. you know, that's what helps me. But you know what I love, Lucy? Here's my mm -hmm. favorite thing as we're talking about all this. Mm -hmm. The biopsychosocial model. 
right? Mm-hmm. Like when I when I look at that, I, I it's like this little checklist. I'm like, oh, is it partially, is it my biology? Is it my psychology? Is it social? Is it all three? Is it a combination, right? Because a lot of this, like, for example, if we're looking at depression and anxiety or even even trauma, right? Like, okay, let's let's eliminate the biological factors, but like, is there anything going on in your life right now? Are you in an abusive relationship? Are you having difficulties at work? Are you unemployed? Because that might make you pretty anxious and depressed. You know what I mean? Is it the people that you're hanging out with? All these things. So like, if we kind of, you know, as we've been discussing, if you don't just try to hype, hone in on just one thing like it's not all biology it's not all hmm. your environment so is is that is that something that you think might help if we educate people about hey here's like kind of the three main categories yeah. or are there more categories that i don't even know about or yeah and and that you don't have to search for a single explanation because it can, it can be multiple things at once mm-hmm. i think there's still this kind of slightly strange biological versus environment fight yeah. when actually you know everything the evidence points to the fact that it's it's a bit of both yeah um i think another downside of the biological sort of interpretation is that it sort of situates the the problem totally within the individual and also therefore the solution when actually Mm. like i said in the book so much of um what we call mental illness arises because people have really stressful lives you know they're unemployed or they're in an abusive relationship or they've been brought up in an unstable home um Blah, blah, blah. There's a million things. So I think if, if you view it as just being, there's something wrong with my brain, then it sort of lets everything else off the hook in a way. When actually there might be something really legitimate in your environment. Like, of course you're unhappy if you, you know, if you have a whole string of difficulties in your life. Yeah, no, that, that definitely makes sense. Um, and, and yeah, so I, I also wanted to talk about uh okay let's talk about like high school slash college kids right so i love the section when you brought up the coddling of the american mind so for those who aren't aware can you can you kind of break down what you've touched on it a little bit in this conversation but the idea of what safetyism is what what might that look like like you're educating teachers and and stuff like that like with some work that you're doing so what does that look like what's safetyism why is it a problem and all that for people well it's it's that um, their word um, from coddling of the American mind and their uh, argument that we've become sort of obsessed and it's very much focused in the US but I think we see it in the UK as well we've become sort of obsessed with safety as the number one priority for children and young people and not just physical safety but emotional you know in inverted commas emotional psychological safety too the idea that this our sort of paramount goal when raising children is to protect them from all kinds of harm including emotional harm um and even though that even though that's the kind of understandable drive as a parent and sort of on the surface mm-hmm. makes sense it's potentially setting up problems later on because you, you need to have some exposure to risk and problems to learn how to deal with them yeah it's i i i'm telling you as a parent it is bonkers i fight <laughs> i fight it on a daily basis like my son is one of the most and i I bet all the parents say this but i am being honest my son (laughs) is one of the kindest most responsible kids ever but i freak out like if he's like uh you know he tries to stay physically active especially like when they were doing like school at home and stuff and just him walking around like the block or whatever Mm. i'm losing my mind i'm like oh my god okay here here's a fun thing lucy here's something that only my girlfriend and my son know i have him turn on my his little find my phone app so i can 
and make sure that he's like a bigger kid and stuff like that. But I think back and, you know, they talk about this uh, in the coddling of the American mind. And there's also like free range kids and stuff like that. Like yeah. I look back at, at my childhood growing up in the 90s and stuff. And we, uh, there was no cell phones. My dad, I would just be like, hey, I'm going to go play with my friends for a while. He'd have no way of getting a hold of me. No way, you know. And so, so anyways, what I'm getting at is personally as a parent, yeah, I get it. Like, and I fight that urge and, you know, none of us want to see our kids suffer or struggle or whatever, but I always, I always try to remind myself that it's only going to make him stronger, right? Like it's only going to make him more resilient because, you know, resilience is a huge thing for me. Like I look back and one of the reasons I, I kind of get through life now is because my life used to be a lot worse, right? So when when trivial things happen now, like when I see people freaking out over like, I'm like, this is nothing, right? Mm -hmm. So I try to let my son struggle to a certain extent. And, you know, there's a there's a balance we have to find. But but yeah, it's it's interesting uh how that's become like a a, a thing. So uh with with a few more questions, I wanna I want to talk about like some of the various solutions, right? So when it comes to like counteracting, you know, like safetyism, but also decreasing stigma and all that, how important is like, is therapy? Like if, if someone has the option, right, should they find a therapist? And if so, what are some things that they should look for? If I, if a friend came up to you and said, Lucy, I want a therapist, what should I look for? Mm -hmm. Which they often do, because it's really hard to, to know what the hell you're supposed to look for. So <laughs> many times to try and find people therapists um i'm quite yeah as i say in the book i'm a big advocate of, um, of therapy i think if you get the right person it's just amazing and i think it, we maybe should slightly divorce it from the idea of illness and disorder because actually if you have quite a specific problem that you're having difficulties with it's incredibly helpful to go and see a therapist just to talk it through with with someone who's sort of professionally trained to help you explore a problem in a way that no one in your personal life can. People jump in with their own experiences. They talk over you. They try and just reassure you. They don't give you the space to actually, or they know you. They know too much about, you You know, the power of a therapist is that they are, they, they professionally care a lot, but they're totally detached from your life. And it's all about you. You know, there's no other social interaction where you can so freely just be totally selfish in 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 terms of kind of understanding yourself so I think yeah it's it's a sh it's such a shame that so many people who would benefit from it cannot access it because mm -hmm. of you know financial um limitations uh yeah I've I've been incredibly lucky to have had it and it, it shouldn't really be like that it should be yeah. like actually if you, you should be able to get it yeah so I I wish I could just freeze that like what you just said, like we need to separate therapy from like the disorder, right? Like if, if tomorrow I came across like a magical genie lamp and I had three wishes, first one would be everybody gets a therapist, every <laughs> single person, right? Cause for me personally, just the way I kind of, I, what's helped me also kind of look at mental health and uh, you know, my own and all that is I try not to look at the disorder, right? I try to look at the symptoms, right? Yeah. Because for example, if I'm talking about my depression, my depression might be, uh, you know, really bad negative self-talk that day, right? But it 
another day, it might be a lack of motivation, right? So I try to be mindful and say, okay, what, what symptoms am I experiencing? So I could focus on the symptom rather than the broad disorder. Cause you know, even like depression, anxiety has like 50, not, not 50, mm-hmm. has like, you know, quite a few things, yeah. but if I yeah. focus on the exact symptom, but like you said too, like the power of a therapist, like just talking with them and, and a lot of people are like, oh, I'll just talk to my friends. But like you mentioned, they know you. I I recently read some books where the author has talked about that and how the people they turn to in their life, they'll minimize their experience and stuff. It's like, yeah, so what better way than finding a stranger who has gone to school for this to give you an objective point of view? Because when I'm when I'm with my therapist, I know that they're they're going to be like they can say, is it possible that you're overreacting to this, that you're making this bigger than it is, or, you know, but they also come from a place of empathy and understanding. And like my, my girlfriend, for example, she's currently in her master's program for social work and all that. So, um, but yeah, so I, I don't know. I just, I really want people to know the value of therapy, but you talk about, you, you talk a, a bit about therapy in the book, but if you had to pick two, two of the best forms of therapy. Like I've, okay, I found a therapist. I'm getting a therapist. They're going to get me in. I could set up an appointment. I have five different options. They specialize in different things. What are your favorite forms of therapy that you think are the most beneficial for a wide range of things? Um, I do think CBT has a lot of potential benefit in terms of, well, two reasons, the C and the B. So the C, the cognitive bit, I think is incredibly helpful to be taught how to think something through in a more helpful way. So, um, you know, if you're anxious about something, what are the, instead of just going around and around your head worrying about it, you know, what are some sort of concrete things you can ask yourself and think about to try and break down that worry? I think that's very powerful. And then the B bit of it is also really helpful. There's interesting stuff about behavioral activation, um, which is, basically just the B bit of CBT being yeah. as effective for depression as CBT. And that's basically the, the B bit is the idea of testing out different behaviors, setting up behavioral experiments. You know, so if you're anxious about something, testing out, doing the thing that scares you. If you're depressed, what can you set up in your life to sort of force you to interact with the world, even when you're not really in the mood to? Mm-hmm. So I think those two things are both really powerful. I also think CBT has its limitations i think one thing i found really difficult about it is it's really really hard to change the way you think mm-hmm. to change the way you behave and when you're having cbt if you're unwell you're trying to do it when you're unwell i mean it's really difficult anyway so i think that's the the limitation of cbt sometimes you're just too you know sort of by definition you know you you can't you can't do it because you're depressed um so i also think there's value in um more kind of mindfulness slash kind of acceptance commitment therapy based Mm. approaches which is kind of totally opposite and it's more about saying actually this is what's happening right now okay so you're worried about something just you know to this is a great simplification but basically just accept that you're worried right now Mm -hmm. um what can you do to look after yourself what can you do to uh, distract yourself or just sort of become more aware of the present moment, it, which is really totally opposite to CBT approach of catch that thought and analyze it and break it down and change it. So I think they're both quite useful because sometimes it's just too difficult to do CBT stuff and it's useful to move more into the um, act stuff, I think. Yeah. And, and Lucy, let me, let me tell you. So I was, 
I was sober and, you know, working on my mental health for like two or three years. And I, you know, I've, I've talked about this on my YouTube channel plenty. I think I even wrote about it in my book, but I discovered mindfulness and it saved my ass. Like I just went full in. I wanted to learn everything about mindfulness, everything about Buddhist philosophy, but just, you know, learning how to not resist what I'm feeling and just accept it. Like it is so empowering and nice. Like, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's easier some days than others, but just training myself to be like, Hey, accepting this, like this is happening. Right. You know, and knowing that it's going to pass and everything. And, and yeah, so, okay. So Jeannie, first one would be everybody has therapy. Second one, everybody has to practice mindfulness, but uh, <laughs> yeah, it, I can't express it because I was, you know, medications um, helped me too. And, and I, I found more solace in the mindfulness. Yeah. Um, well also, yeah, I think there's great value in medication and often it's a case of doing a bit of both, you know, I think medication can put you in the, mm -hmm. in the sort of mindset that will enable you to enact the the therapeutic exercises. So I think they go work very well as a, as a partnership. Yeah. So I, I don't, I, I don't want to keep you too much longer, but real quick question about medications. Mm -hmm. One of the concerns I have is, is over medication. Um, I don't know if it's as big of a problem in the UK, but here there's sometimes where they'll just throw pills at you to get you out of the office. Right. Mm -hmm. So as, as somebody visiting, if I'm going to, you know, a, a, a psychiatrist, like what, what should I be mindful of? Like, should people educate themselves? Should they weigh the pros and cons? Like, you know, because we have to trust our doctors, but at the same time, we also have to do our own, like, kind of due diligence. Um, yeah, it's a really good question. I think my, yeah, find a, a person that you trust who can answer the, your questions. You know, I think often yeah. in the UK, your first step is going to a GP, um, you know, kind of family doctor. Some of them are rubbish with mental health stuff and some of them are brilliant. So I think if, yeah. you, if you go to them and you feel that they're not, they don't understand or they don't have the time to explain things and go to a different one. Definitely. That's something that I recommend. Um, mm -hmm. The other thing I often think is to, to don't dismiss medication out of hand because you think it means you've, you've failed or, you know, it, it, it saddens me when people yeah. won't consider it as, it's an option. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, beyond that, I can't, can't really say any sort of other useful general advice other than yeah to find a, a medical professional that you trust you can talk talk through it because it's certainly not for everyone there are side effects um you know mm -hmm. some people do go on them too readily um but yeah just something that i would say to to my friends i have said to my friends is that um you know at least at least bear it in mind don't dismiss it because you think it means you've you're not mm -hmm. handling it anymore or you failed yeah. Yeah. I, I always encourage people, you know, like uh, ask people if they know somebody, if there's a doctor they trust or a psychiatrist that they trust or, you know, whatever. But also, like you mentioned with the medication, um, you know, I, I, I try to tell people like, hey, one medication might do nothing for you. It might suck. It might give you weird side effects. Give it a little bit of time. Talk to your doctor. Work with your doctor. It's like this teamwork type thing. Same thing with therapy. If, if this therapy isn't working, let's try another one. You know what I mean? It's, it's this relationship and it's like a, a team effort, but last and final question, Lucy, somebody comes up to you, uh, they're from the United States, so they don't have any health insurance, or maybe they're in the UK and they can't get into a therapist <laughs> or doctor or whoever forever. Like I, I've, and I asked this because I've met so many people who are just like, I have no money. I don't have any resources or whatever. I'm just stuck this way. So mm -hmm. like, like 
if somebody has no resources do you think like, for example, self-help books or workbooks or, you know, are there things that a person can do on their own if they have no other outside options and their situation isn't ideal? Um, I think definitely books. If they have the, um, if they're in the frame of mind where they can read and absorb information like that. Um, so there's one I read recently, which is based on ACT principles. It's called The Happiness Trap. Um, exactly what you talk about in terms of you know not trying to fight negative emotions and just sort of uh, work with them as they are for the moment um that is one a recent one that i would recommend um i also am a big um believer in the power of uh looking after your body and how changing your bodily state can affect your state of mind so in terms of um exercise sleep and diet so i'm often amazed by how doing some exercise can change the way i feel and actually it's, it feels like a good shortcut like i don't have to sit down and try and do a cbt exercise or something just exercise and then you don't the thought you know the mood state isn't there afterwards anyway yeah so you see, i think often it's easier to sort of physically move yourself um than to try and sort of fight it intellectually. But I caveat that with the fact that some people are too unwell for exercise to be helpful. Um, and it's, but you know, if you have an eating disorder or something, then exercise yeah. could be part of the problem. So it's, mm. it's, it's oversimplification to suggest that everyone just needs to exercise. But I think it's a, I wish I had discovered it sooner as a, as a tool basically to, um, as a kind of first try when I'm, going through something difficult yeah yeah absolutely uh, yeah reading books taught me because i was like oh going outside is that really going to help my depression my anxiety then i learned about the science behind it. i'm like oh okay <laughs> right you know it's needing better going to because like when i go on my morning walks it's like outside and in nature even though it's hot as hell in las vegas but but yeah listen thank you so much for your time i love your book third wish i don't know why i got on this genie kick but third wish everybody gets your book uh <laughs> but yeah so can you tell everybody two things where can they get the book because i know the release dates were a little different in the uk and the us so yeah. where can people get the book and where can people find you for all the cool stuff that you're doing where are you most active uh so the book is called losing our minds it's only been released in the uk so far uh, so you can get it from uk book outlets at the moment but it's coming out in the us in january um it's also available on the uk audible website again it will come out in the us next year um i'm most active on twitter by far um also you know my email address is pretty readily available um but in terms of i'm also on instagram now dabbling in that Ooh, uh, but, okay. but twitter is definitely my um yeah, where I waste far too much time. Beautiful. Awesome. Well, I will link all that stuff down below. I didn't realize you're on Instagram. So after okay. we hang up, I'll go, I'll go follow you over there. All right. But yeah, Lucy, I appreciate it so much. And we'll, we'll definitely do this again. Great. Right. Thanks so much for your interest. All right, everybody. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Lucy. Like I said, the book's been out in the UK for a while, just coming to the United States, January 25th. Do yourself a favor. Go get that book. Lucy is such a kind, compassionate, knowledgeable, just super smart woman. And I, I can't 
uh, tell you how much I appreciate the work that she's doing. So please grab a copy of this book, grab copies for other people. Um, this is something that I'm very, very passionate about. Uh, so many of the issues, like, you know, when I look, when I look at the world and I look at all these things, uh, you know, there's, you know, there's, uh, you know, the, the culture war issues, there's the economic issues. There's so many things, right. But what I'm always looking at is like, are people happy? right? Are people happy or are they struggling? Are they miserable? Why are suicide rates, depression rates, anxiety rates, addiction rates, why are those all so high, right? And, you know, that's why books like Lucy's are so important because when we have these nuanced conversations, you, me, the rest of the world, we can all start finding better solutions. So please head down to the description, follow Lucy, grab a copy of this book if you haven't yet. And don't forget, make sure you're following me on Instagram and Twitter at The Rewired Soul. And a couple cool ways that are completely free to help support this podcast, if you're interested, which I know you are, uh, one thing you could do, share this episode. Share this conversation I have with Lucy. Helps get the word out. The algorithms love that stuff. And the algorithms also love when you do this other thing that doesn't cost you a penny, head over to Apple Podcasts and leave a rating and a review, all right? That helps out a ton, okay? But some other ways to help support the podcast, and if you're interested in uh, more of the mental health addiction conversation, head over to therewiredsoul.com. I have self-published multiple books on uh, mental health addiction recovery. Uh, I have a book called Rewire Your Anxiety, Rewire Your Anger. I wrote a book called Hope, which is my personal story of overcoming addiction, depression, anxiety, what worked for me. Um, I also wrote a, a short book called Caught in the Crossfire. It's for loved ones of addicts because that's one of the most difficult things to deal with. And uh, I, I always stress to families when I talk with them about how important it is to make sure that your mental health is in order because it is a very difficult situation. So if you want to check out any of the books I've written, head over to the rewiredsoul.com. And there is also an affiliate link down in the description below for BetterHelp Online Therapy. I've personally used BetterHelp. When I got canceled in 2019, uh, you know, I was in a very dark place. I was on the brink of relapse. I was extremely depressed and numb. And it was hard for me not only to take care of myself, but to be a good boyfriend, be a good father, you know. Uh, so BetterHelp Online Therapy really helped me a ton. So if you're interested, if this conversation resonated, if you think uh, not even that you have a mental illness, but therapy, I, I am a true believer that everybody should be in therapy, like every single person. It's not a negative thing and we need to destigmatize going to therapy because literally everybody, like the happiest person you know in your life, that person who's always cheery at the office or that family member who's just like riding high all the time. Yeah, they need therapy too. All right. So if you're interested in that, check out the affiliate link down for, below for BetterHelp Online Therapy. It's affordable online. You do it from the comfort of your own home. You work with a licensed therapist. It's awesome. So check that out. So another huge thanks to Lucy. Make sure you grab a copy of her book, Losing Our Minds. And yeah, I have another episode for you this week, and it's actually kind of in the same realm. Um, I have uh, the wonderful podcast host, writer, Bridget Fetisi. She will be on. Uh, some of you might know this if you're familiar with her podcast. She's actually in recovery too, but she has a massive podcast. And uh, yeah, she took some time to come on. And we talk about not just addiction and recovery, but also uh, how you know, people like us maintain our sobriety and our sanity in such a crazy, crazy world. But we also dive into conversations about, you know, the cult culture wars and politics and, you know, all sorts of stuff. So stay tuned. That's coming for you this week. All right. But anyways, have an amazing rest of your day and I'll see you next time.